A warning before we begin. This episode includes discussions of prescription drug misuse. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. If you or a loved one is struggling with a substance use disorder, visit resources.byspotify.com for support. There is hope. Today's episode involves a topic that's been in the news a lot recently, the opioid epidemic. An estimated 16 million people globally have opioid use disorder. There are many factors that contribute to the number being that high, but a major one is the overprescription of opioids. People are often prescribed opiates to treat pain after a surgery or an injury, but their bodies can quickly become chemically dependent on the drug, leading them to misuse the very drugs that are meant to heal them. It's a problem that affects people from all backgrounds, but there's a lot of misconception about opioid dependence, about who uses these drugs and why. These stereotypes stigmatize substance use, keep people from getting the help they need, and in stories like the one I'm telling today, stop us from finding the answers that families and victims deserve. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a 24-year-old woman from Queensland, Australia. On June 20th, 2013, she left on a road trip with three people she considered friends but they each returned home without her. Nearly a decade later, her family is still searching for the truth. Her name is Monique Club. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It's 2007, and 18-year-old Monique Club is a high school senior. She's gifted, she does well in class, runs track, and has a positive and supportive friend group. She's also extremely close to her mother and siblings. Monique's mom, Sheena, has six children, 
Monique's the second oldest. They're Aboriginal, specifically members of the Butchala people, and live in a coastal area that's historically belonged to their ancestors. Today, the town's called Harvey Bay. It's a small beach community with a population of about 50,000 on the coast of Queensland, Australia. Although Monique has the whole world ahead of her, money is and always has been an issue for her family. It's tough for her mother to make ends meet, so Monique always does what she can to help care for her brothers and sisters. As soon as she graduates high school, she gets a job at a local tavern. Almost every time she gets paid, she gives part of her check to her mother and younger siblings. Her brothers and sisters say she's loving, generous, and puts family above all else. She's like a second mother to them. But then, Monique gets into a car accident. Details about exactly when and where this happens don't seem to be available to the public. However, I know the crash is severe enough to cause serious back and leg injuries. These leave her in a lot of physical pain. I'm not sure how Monique first starts using opioids, but sometime after the crash, she starts taking them to manage the pain. Unfortunately, Monique soon becomes chemically dependent on the drugs. See, opioids work in two ways. They block pain signals to the brain and they flood the brain with dopamine, a chemical that causes feelings of comfort and happiness. Over time, people build up a tolerance to the drug. You need a higher dose to feel the same effects, which can lead patients to increase their dosage. As the brain becomes accustomed to these huge amounts of dopamine, it stops producing as much naturally, which means that if a person stops taking the drug, they can experience serious withdrawal symptoms like severe vomiting, anxiety, pain, and heart palpitations. This is what happens to Monique. Eventually, she can't stop taking opioids without getting physically and psychologically ill. By 2013, Monique is 24 years old. She's using opioids every day. Usually, she injects fentanyl, a synthetic drug that's anywhere from 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine. Sometimes, she gets fentanyl prescriptions from doctors. Other times, she buys it on the street. By this point, she's fallen out of contact with her old high school friends and is spending more time with people who enable her drug use. Since her accident, her life has centered around finding and using fentanyl. She accumulates a minor criminal record for offenses like theft and even serves some time in jail. All the while, Monique remains close to her family. She still lives with her mother and siblings. They can see that she's struggling. Her body is racked with pain. The opioids were supposed to help her cope with the pain, but they've only made her life worse. Then on Thursday, June 20th of that year, she tells her mother she's going on a road trip with three of her friends, Tracy, Alan, and Leighton. The plan is to drive three and a half hours south to Brisbane, stay there for the night, and come back the next day. Monique's mom, Sheena, isn't overjoyed about the idea. It's a really long drive to only stay for one night. Plus, Sheena isn't a fan of these so-called friends. They're some of the people who've enabled Monique's opioid use over the years. But Monique's an adult. Sheena can't tell her not to go. She just tells Monique she loves her and watches the group leave in Tracy's car on the morning of June 20th. They end up being gone longer than Monique said they would. Two days later, they're still not back. Sheena hasn't heard from her daughter at all, which is out of the ordinary. Monique rarely goes a single day without talking to her. But then on the morning of June 22nd, Monique calls. 
She tells her mom she's with Alan, and they're both staying with a man named Dominic Lubler. She also says Dominic's going to drive her home as soon as they get enough money to buy gas. Hopefully tomorrow. I can imagine this raises some questions for Sheena. Like, what happened to the original plan? Where are Monique's two other friends? And who is this Dominic? It's all really unsettling, but Sheena's mostly just relieved to hear from her daughter and is looking forward to her being home soon. However, Monique doesn't get back the next day or the day after that. At this point, it's been four days since Monique left for what was supposed to be an overnight trip. Sheena tries calling and texting her daughter, but she doesn't answer. Worried, she gets in touch with Monique's friends, hoping one of them knows what's going on. All of them, including Alan, who Monique said was going to return with her, have come back to Harvey Bay. But they haven't seen Monique in days. Apparently, they left her back in Brisbane with that friend, Dominic. This has to be really concerning for Sheena. I mean, these were the people Monique trusted. They were all supposed to be traveling together, but now they've all come home without her and they don't seem to have any idea where she is. Sheena waits a few more days, probably hoping it's just taking Monique longer than expected to find money for gas. But when she isn't home over a week later, on June 28th, Sheena calls the Harvey Bay police station to report her daughter missing. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. On June 28, 2011, the Harvey Bay Police Department opens an investigation into Monique Club's disappearance. They review CCTV footage in the Brisbane area. They comb through her cell phone records and bank statements. They are able to reconstruct Monique's movements beginning on the 20th, and this is what they learn. That first morning, Monique and her friends drive about three hours south to a coastal town called Deception Bay. Someone in the area is supposed to sell them fentanyl, so Tracy drops everyone off at the McDonald's to wait, and then she continues driving south. The group stays at the McDonald's for five hours waiting for the dealer, but they never show up. So Alan and Leighton leave to spend the night at a relative's house, but for whatever reason, they tell Monique that she can't come. This means Monique is now in a small beach town, alone, at night, three hours from home with no way of getting back to Harvey Bay which is where Dominic Lubler comes in. He's the ex-boyfriend of a woman Monique met in jail. She's never actually spoken to him before, but she knows he lives nearby. So she contacts him after Leighton and Alan leave, and he agrees to pick her up. 
It's not clear where Monique spends the night. It seems reasonable that she stayed with Dominic, but he later insists that he never took her to his place. Regardless, the next morning, Monique and Dominic go to the house where her other friends had stayed the night. After this, Leighton decides he wants to go home, so Monique and Dominic drive him to the nearest railway station, where he boards a train to Harvey Bay. From there, it seems like Monique spends much of the day driving around with Dominic looking for fentanyl. And this is where the story gets really confusing. There's a gap in the timeline. From that afternoon until a little past midnight when Monique texts a friend, telling him she's hungry, cold, and stuck in South Brisbane, 40 minutes from Deception Bay, with nowhere to stay. It's not clear how Monique even got to South Brisbane. It's possible Dominic dropped her off there, or she might have walked or taken public transportation. Either way, it appears Monique's alone, and because the friend she texts doesn't have a car, he can't help her. So that night, Monique ends up on the street, outside a nursing center. A man who's staying there notices Monique and goes outside to check on her. He introduces himself as Bryce Watt. Monique tells him she's staying at a lodge down the road, which doesn't add up with what she texted her friend. And it doesn't seem like Bryce believes her anyway, because he brings her a blanket and some food before he goes to bed. The next morning, June 22nd, is when Monique calls her mom. On that phone call, she says she's at Dominic's house with Alan and is going to head home as soon as she gets the money for gas. Now, how she gets to Dominic's house or whether this is even true, I don't know. All I know is that based on the police's timeline, Dominic is in the car with Monique at some point that morning and the two of them drive back to the nursing center in South Brisbane where they picked up Bryce Watt, the guy who gave her the blanket the night before. Dominic takes them both to a nearby railway station at 11 a.m., Monique and Bryce get on an eastbound train together. If you're thinking this all sounds alarming, that's because it does. Remember, Monique left home with three people she considered close friends. Two days later, she's on a train with Bryce, a man she met less than 24 hours earlier. He'd been nice to her when she was on the street, but still, he's practically a stranger. They arrive at Bean Lee Station just after noon. Then they walk to Bean Lee Marketplace, a big indoor and outdoor mall. At 12.38 p.m., Monique enters a doctor's office while Bryce waits outside. At the check-in desk, she tells the receptionist her name is Sheena McBride, her mother's name. She also gives her mother's birth date and Medicare number, but she says she has no photo ID. The receptionist is immediately suspicious. Monique looks significantly younger than she's claiming to be and has no documentation to actually prove her identity. But still, the office rarely turns people away if they don't provide all the necessary documentation. Before long, Monique's in an exam room with a doctor. She says she slipped a disc in her back and needs something for the pain. Apparently, the physician also finds Monique suspicious. At one point, she comes back out to the receptionist to tell her she suspects the patient is a, quote, doctor shopper, a person who goes to multiple physicians in order to obtain and misuse prescription meds. Of course, the doctor's right. It seems like this is exactly what Monique is trying to do, which is what makes this next part so concerning. Even though Monique gave no photo ID and appears to be providing false information, the doctor writes her a prescription for pain medication. A lot of it. 
55 milligram diazepam pills, which are strong sedatives, and five 750 microgram fentanyl patches. That is a 15-day supply of the highest possible dosage of fentanyl available. Monique leaves the doctor's office a little after 2.15 p.m. She meets up with Bryce, and they both go to the pharmacy next door. When the pharmacy clerk asks Monique for her ID, she lies and says she already showed it to the receptionist at the doctor's office. Apparently, that's enough. The clerk fills the prescription and Bryce pays for it. Now, the five fentanyl patches are fairly inexpensive, only about a dollar each. But on the street, one patch costs closer to $100. So when Bryce and Monique leave, they're carrying a very valuable and potentially dangerous amount of medication. At 2.24 p.m., Monique calls Alan and tells him she has the fentanyl. That's the last time she uses her phone. Right after that call, she and Bryce part ways. He heads back to the Bean Lee train station while she goes to the nearest restroom. Meaning at this point, Monique is all alone again. She stays in the bathroom for 30 minutes. Although we can't know exactly what she did during that time, investigators believe she used some of the fentanyl she got from the pharmacy, which would make sense. According to one of her sisters, Monique always made sure she was in a safe place before using the drug. A bathroom stall isn't perfect, but at least she can lock the door. At 2.55 p.m., Monique leaves the restroom and walks straight to a spendless shoe store. About five minutes later, a spendless employee contacts mall security to ask for help removing a drunk woman from the store. The guard, a man named Red Apollo, heads over, but when he arrives, the employee tells him that the woman has just exited the mall. They describe her as young, wearing a brown, black, and white dress, and seemingly drunk and combative. So Red leaves through the same exit the woman used, which leads to Hugh Munts Park, a large public area for picnics and camping. It's free to enter, and there's almost always people there. That day, there happens to be a group of people hanging out right near the entrance. Red asks if they've seen a young woman in a multicolored dress, possibly drunk. They say yes. An Aboriginal woman, as they describe her, had just jumped over the concrete wall surrounding the park. Then she sprinted through the grass towards the creek on the opposite side of the campgrounds. Looking out towards the water, Red sees her. Even from far away, he can tell she's walking through the creek, holding a handbag up away from the stream to keep it dry. He watches her stumble. She gets back on her feet, makes it to the far side of the water and stops beside a tall concrete pillar in the shallow creek. Red keeps an eye on her for a minute. She doesn't seem very drunk to him. She just stands there, still holding her bag, not doing anything. He shrugs. He was called to make sure she wasn't bothering anyone at the mall. And from across the creek, she certainly isn't going to be getting in anyone's hair. So he goes back to work. He has no idea that he'd been watching Monique Club and that she'll never be seen again. Now, all these bits of information, the timeline of June 22nd, the phone calls, and the security guard statement are pieced together by investigators in June and July of 2013, after Sheena reported Monique missing. Those first few weeks, investigators conduct numerous searches of the area, looking for Monique or any clues as to where she might have gone. They scour the park on foot, use helicopters to get an aerial view, bring dogs to track her scent, and have the dive squad check the creek. But fairly soon, search and rescue teams determine that there's no way she's in the park. They've looked everywhere, 
She must have left and gone somewhere else in the area. And yet, they don't do much looking after this. As far as we know, they never locate Monique, her phone, or her handbag. By the end of 2013, it's been nearly six months since Monique disappeared, and her family has nothing. They reach out to the police for updates, and are met with silence. In fact, her family never really feels supported by law enforcement. They create a Facebook page where they plead with the public for help and complain that detectives aren't keeping them updated on Monique's case. Then in 2015, Senior Detective Sergeant Powell of the Australian Missing Persons Unit reports his belief that one of two things happened. Monique either died of an overdose in or near Humans Park, or she met with foul play. Two years after Monique Club disappears, Detective Powell concludes his investigation into her case. And for the next eight years, the family is left in limbo, unsure of what actually happened to Monique. It's not until recently, in 2021, that an official inquest is open to review Detective Powell's investigation and Monique's disappearance. The results of the inquest are scathing. In a 33-page report, the Queensland State Coroner says that law enforcement fell tragically short in the search for Monique. It's like they didn't even try. Earlier, I said the regional authorities and the Australian Missing Persons Unit conducted extensive searches of Humans Park looking for Monique, which is true. At the time, it might have seemed like they were doing everything they possibly could to locate her, but I'd argue they could have done more. For example, their investigation into local CCTV footage after police determined it was unlikely she was in the park, they did check security cameras in the area, sort of. They actually only checked footage from one place, the Beanley train station, and public records show that they only looked at the footage until 3.30 p.m. the day she went missing. Remember, Monique didn't even leave the bathroom until 2.55 p.m. And the coroner points out that there are countless places Monique could have gone besides the Beanley station. She could have walked to a different train station. She could have gotten a ride or stayed the night somewhere. She could have done anything. And there likely would have been footage of where she went had the police made more of an effort. The coroner asserts that, quote, the investigation was discontinued at a time when it may have been possible to obtain further evidence. In other words, they gave up too soon. Authorities say Monique either one, died of an overdose in or around the park, or two, was murdered nearby. In either scenario, authorities think Monique is dead. It's what the coroner thinks and what most of her family believes too, especially because after she called Alan on the afternoon of June 22nd, Monique never uses her phone again. She received countless calls and texts from family and friends, but didn't respond to any of them. Monique hasn't touched her bank accounts or social media either. Essentially, there's been nothing to suggest she's still alive. But Monique's family and medical experts find it hard to believe she suffered an overdose. According to an article from the American Addiction Centers, fentanyl overdoses are actually known for how quickly they happen, sometimes within seconds of a person using the drug. If Monique used enough fentanyl in the bathroom at the shopping center to overdose, we can safely assume she wouldn't have been able to walk to the Spendless shoe store, much less sprint across the park and through the creek after that. It's possible she stopped to use more fentanyl, 
But even if Monique did die of an overdose in or around Hugh Munt's park, where is she? The park is large, flat, and grassy. Trees pop up here and there, but it's not anything close to a forest. To the coroner, it really seems like she would have been found by now. Which brings us to theory number two, foul play. Anything could have happened. Maybe someone took advantage of her in her vulnerable state. Maybe she ran into someone dangerous while she was leaving the park. Her family has drawn attention to the fact that she was carrying five fentanyl patches. Like I said earlier, they're worth a lot of money on the street, meaning Monique might've been robbed or even killed for the drugs. I don't wanna go too far down this rabbit hole because honestly, anything could have happened to her. And because police ended their search too soon, we don't have any specifics on who might've approached her or where she went after leaving the park, which is extremely sad and even more frustrating. See, while I was researching this story, I had a lot of questions. I've already outlined most of them, but there's one thing that's still bothering me, and it might be the most important of all. Why did the police stop looking for Monique so soon? Why, when there were so many other avenues to explore, did they quit? I think there are multiple answers and they don't have to do with the attitudes of specific police officers, but rather with the larger trends that affect policing and justice. At the beginning of this episode, I mentioned that Monique and her family are Aboriginal, members of the Butchula people. I've covered the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women on this show before. It's a huge problem in the United States, but it's also an issue elsewhere, like in Canada, and as this story illustrates, Australia. Indigenous people in Australia are overrepresented among the missing. Only about 3% of the country is Aboriginal, but depending on the state, Indigenous people make up anywhere from 6 to 17.5% of unsolved missing persons cases. Aboriginal women are also 10 times more likely to die from a violent assault than non-Indigenous women. So I think it would be disingenuous to say Monique's race didn't affect the police response to her disappearance but it's not the only factor. Monique also had a criminal record, albeit a minor one. Her family believes law enforcement didn't make her case a higher priority because she had had previous run-ins with the law. And of course, there's Monique's known substance use disorder. It seems to me that once police knew Monique had fentanyl and likely used it on the day she disappeared, they assumed an overdose and moved on. Despite having no evidence to suggest she died, that's the story they told the family. It feels like law enforcement jumped to that conclusion so quickly, it stopped them from exploring alternatives, which isn't just tragic, it's infuriating. Like I said earlier, there are a lot of misconceptions about opioid use and drug use more broadly. So often, people with substance use disorders are treated as a lost cause, like they're not worth helping or looking out for. And that's not the case. If you take anything away from this episode, I want it to be that substance abuse can happen to anyone. And recovery isn't just possible, it's likely. According to a 2020 study published by the CDC and the National Institute on Drug Abuse, three out of four people who experience addiction eventually recover. Those are good odds. And there are so many organizations out there that offer support and community to those who are struggling. 
I don't know what happened to Monique Club, but I do know that when she went missing, she had an entire life ahead of her. A life that she deserved to live. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. This is an open case. If you have any information that could help locate Monique Club, contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-333-000 or online at crimestoppers.com.au slash contact. Like I said at the top, if you or a loved one is struggling with a substance use disorder, please visit resources.byspotify.com for support. There is hope. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from Parcast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Karis Allen, edited by Amber Von Schassen and Aaron Lan, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Freddie Beckley, and sound designed by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. 